you can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal or measure them all by box office appeal but for once in your life be real so before we start episode 100 i just want to get something very important off my chest and that thing is the bum 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 Welcome, one and all, to Be Real. It is your movie-reviewing and reappraising podcast uh, here for a quite special episode. My name is Chance Solem Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard. So I've asked you, I've asked you this like a hundred times, but how are you, friend? I'm pretty good. You all right? Yeah. I think it's pretty amazing after a hundred episodes, we only like forgot to hit record once. So what we're going to do today is talk about technical flubs we've made over the last like nearly three years for like an hour and then like Mission Impossible for like 10 minutes. Does that sound okay? How annoying would it be if we did like a, you know how like sitcoms used to do like the greatest hits of like the previous six seasons when they hit like a hundred episodes? Absolutely. What if we just did that and just cut to, but like fake things where we're like getting into like, no, you're... Mother looks like Paul Thomas Anderson or like whatever. <laughs> yeah, no, Fake I'm, arguments. I'm glad we're not doing that. I'm glad we really this the uh, the irony of blowing it out for episode 100 like this and talking about all six Mission Impossible movies is we really haven't much time to dally and uh, self indulge in it being episode 100. Should we just get into? Let's talk yeah, about but, what we're doing. Other than the huge self indulgence uh, <laughs> of watching all 12 hours of Mission Impossible movies in like oh, yeah. 10 days. And then talking about them for another two hours. Mm. Uh, there will be no Falderall on this podcast. Jesus Christ. Um, so I take it we're going to review these in order. We have. You know, let's, let's, let's start with five and then go back to two and five, then do one. Two. Ghost Pro. Three, one and six. I got it. Um, <laughs> So we're going to do it in order, which means, of course, that Mission Impossible Fallout, which just came out and has, for the most part, been rocking the worlds of uh, of theater goers. It's gotten incre- the, definitely the highest praise a movie in this franchise has ever gotten. We're going to talk about that last. So God willing, that'll be around the 90-minute mark and not the 120-minute mark. Uh, but maybe in the spirit of Christopher McQuarrie, we just push this thing way past two hours. But with that... Let's take it back to 1996, shall we? Good morning, Mr. Phelps. This is your mission should you choose to accept it. Should you or any member of your IM force be caught or killed, the secretary will disavow all knowledge of your actions. Ethan Hunt will be your point man as usual. Good luck, Jim. It was 1996, and Brian De Palma, who is like pals with George Lucas and Steven Spielberg and stuff, decided he wanted himself a franchise. Yes. And Tom Cruise and his producing partner, was it Paula Wagner, decided, or they had had optioned this property of this old television show, Mission Impossible, which I've never seen a single episode of. And it was, it's like on Hulu or Amazon or something, and I easily could have, but I was like, no. <laughs> After watching 12 hours of Mission Impossible, I'm not going to go to the source material. Uh-huh. Um, but in the source material from the, the brief reading that I did, Phelps, uh, Jim Phelps is like the, the hero. Right. And Ethan Hunt is like his protege. Mm-hmm. 
but as the as this story develops, Ethan, of course, played by Tom Cruise in like the biggest franchise that he's probably part of. You know, sometimes he plays him for laughs. Sometimes he plays him for cries. Sometimes he's a romantic. Sometimes he is just a mindless, cocksure son of a bitch. That's right. That's a good description. He's all over the map, but he is never not fully invested in the evolution of a human being called Ethan Hunt. Right, right. And yeah, I like how you you put that. I mean, Brian De Palma as something throughout his career. He he got something nice, and the, but he kind of hated it. Do you get that sense with this movie? I get the sense that he was like frustrated with how much money they gave him to make this movie. He could like do anything he wanted. He's like, I was just gonna make like a boring, like weird, convoluted, sexy, like crime picture where no one really leaves the hotel room. Yeah. And they're like, but here's like $150 million. Like, you can do some stunts if you want. And he's like, fine, we'll do like a thing with like some rope. So this movie opens and there's a there's a team of people, an IMF team. IMF, of course, if you don't know, and I actually didn't know before researching for this podcast, it stands for Impossible Mission Force. But yeah, Jim Phelps, played by John Voight, has his team. Uh, and they are in, where are they? Prague? Prague. To, um, to pick up this, what they call the knock list. Just a, a list of spies. You know, you know how cover. I knew what the knock list was? What? Because of my familiarity with the recruit, which took us through basic training at Langley. So I'm familiar with the knock. But then everything goes sideways. And Emilio Estevez gets cheesed pretty quick. And there was a funny right. line in a Crooked Marquee article that you all should read. Uh, oh yeah, Portland film critic Eric Snyder did like quite a breakdown. Boy, were people surprised when Emilio Estevez got killed so early? Nobody expected that. Not so soon after his Mighty Ducks triumphs. Today, of course, Emilio Estevez should be so lucky as to get killed early in a <laughs> summer blockbuster. <laughs> that's about right. And um, that's what happens. Like the movie takes this like sudden, weird, violent turn, and I th- thought it's like very upsetting, right? Were you like upset by it? It's incredibly subversive because you think that this team of Kristen Scott Thomas and Tom Cruise and Emilio Estevez and Emmanuel Bayard and uh, John Voight are going to be like, you know, your team for the movie. But the twist is that because that's, you know, they're based on the team from the show. And the twist is that if you haven't seen these movies, spoiler alert for all these movies. okay? what are you doing here? Um, They all all die in the first yeah, save for well, you think at first save for just Tom Cruise, right? And then he calls. Uh, how do you say this guy's name? Henry Zerny. Oh, Henry Zerny, baby. Who Henry Zerny as Kittredge is incredible. He comes to get it in this movie. He like Henry Zerny has never been more Henry Zerny in his life. Like this is kind of a riff on his clear and present danger character. It's the exact same character. <laughs> it, it, which is to say the exact same character with the full force of the American government behind him. <laughs> um I guess he has it in both pictures. Um right. anyway, but he thinks that I mean he he sort of reveals pretty quickly that everyone getting killed was, in fact, just a, like a fake mission to, to you know, smoke out a mole. And they think Ethan's the mole because he's the only one who's still alive, but he's not the only one still alive. As you pointed out, as everybody has pointed out, kind of 
you know, recapping this franchise. This movie is is in a much different place than we end up. I think it's much different than all the movies. It's a different genre. And almost like it almost became a challenge for the filmmakers to see how much action they could put in the movie without having to stop or and explain anything. Right, right. And this movie just goes nuts for like explaining like, you know, policy and, you know, international stuff and like technology that's like, if you understand how technology works now, like, you know, that that's like total horseshit then. Right, right. And then the movie kind of like decides that like, oh, we have $50 million left. Like, what do we do? And they're like, what if we put the helicopter in the tunnel? And then the whole thing builds to this pretty cool, I think one of the better like train action sequences in cinema history, but in such a pretentious, like unnecessary and like not that great by like 2018 standards, technology and effects. No, especially considering how the the new one just blows the helicopter chase out of the water. Right. Yeah. It's almost an embarrassment that there is a helicopter chase in any other one of these movies. That's where I think what's aged much, much better is the, the very famous CIA infiltration hang, because that is a set piece entirely built around tension control artistry, the artistry of both, Ethan Hunt catching his sweat bead in his in his gloved hand, and of Brian De Palma catching him catching it. Um, that's yeah. so like that's the advantage that Mission Impossible has when it gets blown out of the water by later effects. Definitely. So I want to come back to the you're like this movie loves to explain. I feel like the catalyst behind it loving to explain is its three headed screenwriting team of Robert Town. Who wrote Chinatown and Polished Bonnie and Clyde? Oh, David Kep, who adapted Jurassic Park, and Steve Zalian, one of the best screenwriters of the last thirty years. But yeah, you just have this script that has is so part of it. It's a double-edged sword because it's so idiosyncratic in such an interesting way that like you could never sell a movie to international markets if some of the lines were you know, it's a very expensive proposition dying slowly in America. It's like a line that would never make it into any of these other movies. Or John Voight being like, you saw the Bible stamp? Those damn Gideons. (laughs) (laughs) So, like, those are very entertaining, but they also, again, make this movie so much different than all the others. Yeah, you're probably right. Um, It didn't have larger ambitions, perhaps, this little franchise that could... um, but also, like, it, with, you'd think with all that talent, like, so the basic setup of the movie is that the hero from this series, uh, Jim Phelps, like, double crosses Ethan Hunt by faking his own death and then, like, bringing himself kind of back, but, like, in the assumed thing that, like, Ethan knows, but the CIA doesn't know, but that's because he's playing him. And then right. Vanessa Redgrave's in the movie for some reason as, like, the broker of this arms deal. It's all very, like, it's hard to describe. I don't really think I get, like, what happens in the end more than, like, he was double-crossed by this character. I don't know. Well, you're describing a problem with the entire franchise, which is, like, villains' motivations are either, like, so opaque as to make no sense because it would require this person to like monologue for an hour to explain it or they're like purposefully unexplained because it's just like guys we don't have time for this like you you get it this guy wants to blow up the world 
So well, I want to talk about some heady shit in a second, because like I think yeah. looking at especially the sixth one, because I think it's very aware of exactly what you're talking about. Right. So it sort of breaks down this idea of like without evil, Ethan Hunt would not exist. Right. He's Doesn't like that make Ethan Hunt evil? Mm hmm. You know, and has those like funny lines in there about being your own worst enemy and stuff yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. But this one doesn't, it doesn't, hasn't, it really hasn't concerned itself with the quote unquote great suffering that needs to occur in the world for like everything to have its balance. Right. He's too young and he hasn't repeated this process yet. Who? So that doesn't, Ethan Hunt. So right. That, it seems like it's an early mission for Ethan. Yeah, that theme hasn't really come into play yet. Yeah, we've, we'll definitely talk about that later. But yeah, I don't even really understand why Jim does whatever he does. There's, He's been disavowed too many times. There's a screenwriting flex in there about how, uh, you know, you, got, you can get fat off the Cold War and feel like the most important man in the world, but eventually they tear the wall down and you're just some schmuck making $60,000 a year. Which is like very like, okay, yes, a screenwriter loved to put that part together. But the part that makes no sense is the very De Palma-esque thing where like, did Phelps just want to bait Ethan into sleeping with Claire so he could kill Claire? Yeah, it's maybe like a that's very it. weird. Like, and he's just like, we've both sampled the goods, Ethan. And I was like, oh God, what is, <laughs> what? This, why is this You're part of the Eskimo, plan at bro, all? You're my Eskimo bro, Ethan. We, yeah, we both shared the same face and the same wife. It's, That's gross. It, it doesn't make a lot of sense. It's very unnecessary. It feels very De Palma. But that's the funny thing about all these movies is they all have like a very specific directorial voice to them. Of course. It's one of what makes them fun to talk about. And they're like trying to shake off like the sins of the father. Right. And it <laughs> Every takes... Director. The, Right. Every director. And every is time an over, it's an overcorrection. It's an overcorrection. So, well, this is my my point is that I feel like Brian De Palma saw Star Wars. He saw Indiana Jones, and he was like, "No, we're gonna do it <laughs> this way, and it's gonna be yeah. annoying, and people aren't gonna like it." And the studio is probably like, "Brian, why did you make it that way? Where do you land on this movie?" Yeah. Do we need to explain the rating system real quick? Let's probably throw gotta- to that. There is no ambiguity on Be Real. All movies can and will be classified by one of our four ratings. Good, good, bad, bad, good, bad, and bad, good. The first good or bad refers to sheer artistry. The second is pure entertainment. Good, good is easy to explain. It's a movie that engages your inner art critic and brings you some form of happiness. For both reasons, you want to watch that movie again. Think Shawshank Redemption or Jurassic Park. <laughs> or more recently, Get Out and Lady Bird. That we know of yet. Good Good Movies make Noah hyperbolically say, That was the best movie I've ever seen. Bad Bad is easy too. Movies that bring you neither stimulation nor joy. Basically, you just spent two hours wishing you could watch something else. Think of any musician turned actor who gave it a go in a Nicholas Sparks adaptation. I'll pass. Or many Nicolas Cage movie where he plays a wizard or a warrior. You are going to be a force for good and a very important sorcerer. Bad, bad movies make chance say, I hate so much that you made me watch that. Now, good, bad movies. Those we recognize as worthwhile in a cinematic sense, but don't necessarily enjoy. Think Schindler's List, Requiem for a Dream, or a ward's bait that hinges on a historical figure delivering an impassioned speech. I have given you my soul. Leave me my name! 
These kinds of movies make Noah say, But it was so boring. And then I remind him that at least Leo finally got his Oscar for crawling through all that mud. Conversely, bad good movies feed your thoughtless inner child. They're anything from flawed but charming Nancy Myers outings. I'm miraculously done being in love with you! To late career missteps like Al Pacino and Danny Collins. They're loud and silly, like Kurt Russell in Big Trouble in Little China, or Stargate. It's all in the reflexes. Bad good movies make me want to watch Tombstone, especially when Noah says, But didn't the Mighty Ducks just give you that warm holiday feeling? Got all that? Now buckle up, because you're about to hear two friends who watch movies for very different reasons talk about their taste like it's God's own truth. I think that this movie is really weird and messy, but as somebody who loves dialogue and I think enjoys this franchise for the bizarre side characters who come in and just like seem to do whatever they want, this movie has the most of that. I think this mo- this movie has the most potential energy to it, but it just like expresses it in such a weird way. And it's not, it's more entertaining to watch Tom Cruise, like, run, like, a full city block without, like, stopping for anything. Or, like, run the whole, like, length of a small town. Sure, Than it is to see him, like, pacing and, like, sweating in a hotel room in, like, Amsterdam. Uh Uh-huh. You know, so I think, wow, this is an important piece of the puzzle and, like, unlocking what I think is a pretty admirable series. Uh, I'm going to give it like a good bad not a lot of rewatch value i've this is like the third time i've seen it and there were a lot of moments in it like of course like the scene in the room but if you pick apart the scene in the room with the cia thing it's like the logic behind it is so like goofy like it spends so much time on stuff that like doesn't need to be isn't that true of every single one of these? I know, it is every one of them. But like... Yeah, you got to hold on to some of this stuff. <laughs> I know, you're right. But it's... I think it's just a little dated to be good, good. Well, well it's definitely dated. I think it's, I think it's good, good, though. It, I will say it's, it's not my favorite of the franchise. I think, I think its flaws are extremely overt. Um, <laughs> but I also just... What, are you, what do you think the biggest flaw in the movie is? I think it's the the weird thing where like the whole plan was for Jim Phelps to like bait Ethan into sleeping with Claire, and then yeah. there's like that moment where they just like hold hands and then it like cuts away. And you're it's like, sort of Did like Ocean's it? Twelve. If like the big reveal was that uh, Brad Pitt and Julia Roberts had slept together before the movie started, and like <laughs> George was just like acting out this like yeah. subversive fantasy where they all end up in jail together. But I also think you never. What is never quite recaptured in this movie is the kind of the classic bizarre, like violent tension of just like people at a table. The Dutch tilts in the restaurant of Zerny and Cruz going back and forth. Oh, my God. Hunt, I know you're Hunt. I know you're upset. Kittredge, you've never seen me very upset. Like this is still like edgy, sharky Cruz. And he's wearing like that blue sweater with like the vertical indentations. If there were if there were only a uh, pool table in that room. Right. (laughs) You could do some of those tricks that Marty taught him. Yep. Um, So I'm going to give it a good good. Um, For the sake of this conversation, I'm going to say it's a good bad, but I see your points. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mission Impossible 2, on the other hand, I think its flaws are also very overt, but in a visual aesthetic, um, I just want to call car sick. <laughs> How do you... Do you like John Woo in general? I just think the director of Face Off should have no business anywhere near a franchise that made money. You know, like, why would you get him to do the second of these in what was like a surprise profitable thing? But also like years later and it, uh, such a like a uh, it was like you're going from like the mid 90s to what, 2000? Right. And 2000 was a gross time. Like, yeah. things were all neon green yeah. and like it's gone in 60 seconds and things were like slowed down kind of and we like just like looking at stuff just like really big right in the face i feel like in addition to just considering what each director brings to the various iterations these movies also just make me think about like what directing means like all the different things like a director has to do and like you look at de palma and be like yeah that the helicopter in the tunnel is like not that great, but he, De Palma is more about like small quirks. The thing of uh, Jean Renault grabbing the floppy disk as soon as he hauls Ethan Hunt up and you think he's safe and he goes, merci, and then the knife falls. And it's like, oh shit, I was not expecting something that small but significant. And John Woo, you think about scope and you think about movement. And I think there are moments in which the scope and movement works well in this movie, but it's also just paced terribly for yeah. an action movie. And it also, like, rides on this sort of nonsense allegory about, like, diseases and evil and money. And it just opens with such a flourish, which is both this cold open where it's Ethan, but he's evil. And then you realize it's a terrorist with an Ethan mask on for no fucking like what? That doesn't make any sense. What do you mean? What do, you, what do you mean? Why would he have to convince all these people that he was killing anyway that he was Ethan Hunt? Like, why did he pick Ethan Hunt as the mask? He had to convince the doctor who was Ethan's contact to get on the plane in the first place. Oh, sure. Yeah. But that's stupid. And then we <laughs> cut to Ethan Hunt, real Tom Cruise, just like climbing up the side of a cliff. That's where we find him. And you're like, is he vacationing or is he about to get a mission? Right. And that also is the first moment, I think, where you're like, real Tom Cruise is putting himself like in the way of danger for spectacle's sake. That opening shot of him with the title sequence is, it's pretty labored. It's, uh, yeah. <laughs> and it, it like sets a tone for this movie that I think like most of it is Tom Cruise crawling on that cliff. It's all on that cliff. It opens with this, the, this doctor. This Russian doctor infecting himself with a chimera virus and being like, I got to be to Atlanta. You're not presumably- saying it right. It's chimera. Chimera. <laughs> presumably because the CDC is in Atlanta. He's got to be there within 20 hours or he's a dead man. Um, and then, as you said, evil Ethan Hunt, who turns out to be Sean Ambrose, a disavowed MI or IMF agent, uh, has him. They let the plane crash. They get the files or the virus or whatever it is. It's impossible for me to keep the MacGuffins of six movies straight. <laughs> well, this is just like uh, three tubes of this lethal virus that seems to not be contagious at all. 
we the only way to today. give yourself this disease is to sh- like inject about six ounces of it into your arm through a gun. Yeah, so Ethan Hunt's been taking a break, climbing Devil's Tower or whatever he's doing. Yeah. Um, and so then Anthony movie, Hopkins. Oh my God, Anthony Hopkins. That was another funny line from that piece where he's just like, if you remember, Anthony Hopkins is in this, which I don't think he remembers. <laughs> no, I mean, why He's only he? in like two scenes and he's just doing his classic Anthony Hopkins explains foreign policy. Right. Explains the morality of uh, espionage. Yep. Oh, there is none, by the way. There's none. Um, and then his his mission, if he chooses to accept it, is to like go have sex with Thandie Newton and make Sean Ambrose, Doug Ray Scott, jealous so he can like impersonate somebody and get back the tubes of the virus. Yep. Before and- he sells them to uh, Brendan Gleeson. <laughs> right, who's the sleazy head of a pharmaceutical company? But Naya, played by Thandie Newton, is a is a master thief, and so sort of the one of the first things of the movie is he's got to go. She like, gets caught how- pretty quickly for a master thief. Well, Ethan makes her get caught. He sets off the alarm. So that's how they meet. Yeah, it's this like kind of weirdly like uncomfortably sexual. Like they're in a yeah. tub together, and for some like why would the safe be in the tub? Right. You know, but somehow they're, you know, it's like that conventioneers song by the bare naked ladies. Now they're in the bath. Right. <laughs> and um, that... Tom Cruise, like, sort of paws at Thandie Newton for like 45 seconds until the guy whose tub it is, like, wanders in and they're like, we're just kidding. We're testing the security. And that old right. line works on them. Yep. And. That leads to like one of the most spectacularly unnecessary car chases ever to have been captured on film. It's so unnecessary. I feel like one of the things with this franchise is that as the set pieces build and build and build, what becomes unwatchable are like the mid-series car chases. (laughs) It's like, not a car chase, please. Yeah, I mean, at least this one does, like, upshift into what is essentially, like, jousting on motorcycles with guns, but, you (laughs) know, but still, the opening car chase where they're, like, spinning in slow motion, like, staring at each other, and then, of course, like, Thandie Newton ends up on, like, the side, and Tom Cruise has to, like, grab her arm before it's too late, and he's, like... Let us have sex. And then they like, it cuts to them like in the, you know, the scene from the room where they're like in the waterfall (laughs) waterfall, and and he's like humping her leg. This is by far the, uh, the bondiest of the six. Right. Which is to say like overly sexualized, (laughs) (laughs) overly sexualized and probably worse for it. Welcome to Australia, mate. This ain't funny. The mother of all nightmares is on the loose. I don't think I can do it. I mean, it'll be difficult. Very. Well, this is not mission difficult, Mr. Hunt. It's mission impossible. Yeah, because it's interesting. So if we're tracing the evolution of Ethan Hunt... He doesn't evolve a lot. His hair has evolved down to his shoulders a bit, right. um, but he well, does you think have about that. Sort it, like of... he was like a he had the sexuality of like a fourteen year old in Mission Impossible One, 
in this one, he's like more like 17, 18, and he's just like <laughs> trying to get it. And he'll do whatever. Uh, you and know? his big, I mean, his, uh, the dramatic tension within his character is just this very contrived thing where he is, you know, sends Naya to re seduce Sean, which of course then all of his. You know, his character anchor is like, oh, I hope Naya doesn't get hurt by the person I'm making her seduce. I mean, it's Bondy in that way, but it's also like weirdly like pimpy. Oh, yeah, of course. It's not good. <laughs> it's politics are both worn on its sleeve and are very hard, like very hard to deal with. But lest you think that Danny Newton is the only sexualized being in, in this movie, we have got to talk about the homoeroticism vis-a-vis Doug Ray Scott, Sean, and well, his, like, his servant... Who's this other guy? Wallace? Well, this movie, much like MI1, is very much in the you-fuck-my-wife, like, milieu. Yeah. It's, like, super, like, obsessed with the idea of anyone, like, having sex with anyone that formerly had sex with someone else. And, like, what right. that means for the... Oh, there's a strange amount of possessiveness for, like, uh jet-setting spies who you would think would have fewer attachments right the scene between doug ray scott and hugh stamp where you like get a sense of their relationship and then doug ray scott like makes him kneel and then uses a cigar clipper to threaten to clip off one of his fingers i think it was a penis thing yes and then later on well they always look like they're gonna kiss and then later on he's just (laughs) like and that's he's the most scottish person in the world which is unfortunate um (laughs) he's just like that's how you get your gun off is very weird and the horror when he eventually kills hugh stamp right but i just love the way doug ray scott says isn't that right hunt he just loves everyone else calls him ethan or ethan hunt but he just he just goes nuts for hunt but Doug Ray Scott's terrible in this movie. <laughs> this, this villain's pretty bad. He's really bad. I mean, he's Doug Ray Scott, who's best known for playing uh, the prince in Ever After, that Drew Barrymore uh, Cinderella pastiche. He is not. He is not like a Philip Seymour Hoffman <laughs> or a John Voight level malevolent character. Um, he would be the villain from Taken Three, which he is. Ex- Yes, that is about right you know they didn't they didn't get around to calling him for the first two but like three what's the prince from ever after doing but yeah mission impossible 2 suffers from a lot of things it's not it's having too big big of a budget and most of it's spent on effects and not on a cast yes like sandy newton is a fine actress but she has nothing to do here and she doesn't make a big enough choice to really leave an impression so when she like dramatically disappears from the series it's like not all that big of a loss you know, and there are, there of course, it's John Woo, so there are, like, brash, at times, interesting set pieces. Like, at the end, when they, on the motorcycle, smash into each other mid-air, fall to the ground, hugging each other. And where does Woo cut? To a wave, climactically smashing against the shore as they are, like, hugging onto each other. Um, you think that's, do you think that's fucking? Yes! Are you kidding me? Christopher McQuarrie would never cut to a wave smashing against the shore as apropos nothing. The last 15 minutes of this movie is probably the best hand-to-hand combat sequence of the series. That's wrong. 
the bathroom scene in Fallout? Come on. That's pretty great, too. But this one, just the sustained one-on-one, like, it's almost like, I mean, I guess because of John Woo's background, you know. Right. But it's, I think it's pretty great. And just like, it is good. so you're tired by the end of it from just watching it, just the way they are, just sort of like, <sighs> like spinning their legs and doing all kinds of kicks. Right. I definitely have written down the, the move that Ethan Hunt never shows the capacity to do again, where he wraps one leg around Doug Ray's neck and then wraps the other behind and kicks him backward in the brainstem. <laughs> It's like a pretty good move. I really do like that Ethan Hunt takes on the properties of the filmmaker. Ethan Hunt has never been this good at kicking before. And he never will never be that again. Yeah. (laughs) But he's very good at kicking in his like, you know, early thirties. This uh, installment also wins the, I wrote down, uh, there are approximately five fonts in the opening title sequence. 2000 a bad year for fonts too (laughs) just a bad year for art in general i think yeah but why isn't brendan gleason like the villain of this movie like that's the smart choice inexplicable of course you know brendan gleason's amazing yeah i don't know if people knew that in 2000 he was a real late bloomer i think this movie might be a bad bad if we're being real it is a bad bad yeah, I want to say nice stuff about this one, and I feel like I have because I just I like directorial flourishes. But unfortunately, it's but five it, face masks. Most people agree this is the worst of the movie. Yeah, tell, what's the face mask count at this point? <clears throat> five, uh, four in the first one, five in the second one. We're up to nine masks. Okay. So let's talk about MI three. MI three. So much time passed between six years. Filmmaking has returned to palatable. <laughs> Um, yeah, you could say it's Return to Palatable. You could also say it's, uh, not as interesting. It's, so this is J.J. Abrams. And is it ever? Oh, it's extremely J.J. Abrams. We cold open, because these movies all have cold open, on the famous, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman countdown. He's in a, he's in a helicopter with Ethan Hunt and, uh, Michelle Monaghan, and he's saying, give me the rabbit's foot. I'm going to count to 10, which is quite a long count. Hans Gruber, I seem to recall, only counted from three. Um, but this, this scene's got to go on. So Owen Davian, an incredible villain name. <laughs> but at the, end of the, at the end of the 10, he's just like, you think I'm, you don't think I'll do it? Well, he <laughs> shoots her in the leg first. He's not fucking around. Um, and the gunshot happens at 10. We black out. It's Mission Impossible. And we cut to whatever Virginia suburb they're living in where Ethan Hunt and what's Michelle Monaghan's character's name? Do we have her name? Uh, Julia. They're getting married. Uh, Yeah. Well, Ethan Hunt has like checked himself out of the impossible impossible mission force. Right. And now he's just a lay person or as that article calls him, a coward. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Lots of shine for uh, Eric Snyder laugh lines on this show. So good. Um, (laughs) But yeah, he's just like trying to get married. So like it, we open with them and they're at like their bridal shower or whatever. And a bunch of people from Felicity are there. And it's like, oh, J.J. Abrams. Nice. A couple of lens flares later. But not Carrie Russell yet. Not Carrie Russell yet. But like, yeah, a couple moments later, the phone rings and it's Billy Crudup. And he's just like, Carrie Russell, after she went to the University of New York and found herself... She was kidnapped by Owen Davian et al. 
and were putting together an unsanctioned rescue mission. Right. And so Tom Cruise goes through the whole rigmarole of having to save Carrie Russell. And just as he's like leaving the building after this pretty intense, like 10 or 15 minute sequence, her brain just explodes and her eyeballs go all cockeyed and she's dead. Felicity is very dead. A horrifying little thing that those brain implants do when they go off. It's a good choice, though, by this movie to, like, hire a well-known small-time actress to, like, die in the first ten minutes. It's a real return to, like, Emilio Estevez. She, yeah, she's the Emilio of MI3. She's the Emilio Estevez of this picture. Um, but then Tom Cruise has to go back in the fold, and he's like, Julia, I'm going to a traffic salesman's convention in <laughs> Budapest or wherever. <laughs> He has this really dumb line about, like, you know, when you are in traffic, well, that's my job. (laughs) Oh, my. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And so he has to go to the Vatican to put on a face mask. And let's see how many changes I got here. Yeah, he's back in. Yeah, he's back in. And he's got to impersonate Philip Seymour Hoffman and... Pretend he's Owen Davian, the famed sadistic arms dealer who we saw in the cold open, who's going to have his wife in a little while. Yeah. But that's what's interesting about these movies and the whole thing about Ethan existing. If he hadn't gone after Owen Davian, his wife never would have been in trouble. But it's almost as if that scene happened the moment he made the choice to go save Carrie Russell. Five. You have a, a wife and girlfriend? Four. Three. Whoever she is, I'm going to find her. Two. I'm going to hurt her. One. And then I'm going to kill you right in front of her. What are you not telling me? One of the things that bugs me about MI3, though, is that I don't think it... It doesn't get this. There There is, to me, an excruciating scene where Ethan is lying to Julia's face... She's just like, so what is your job? Why are you gone? Why are you so sad? It's almost like Felicity died in your arms. Yeah, why do you have blood all over you? And he's just like, you trust me, right? Please trust me. Let's get married. And the movie, mind-bogglingly, is just like, we're we're with Cruz on this. It's like <laughs> he's lying to her face and then asking to get married because he can't sustain this lie. Well, it's a real like 2006 Tom Cruise jumping up and down on Oprah's couch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, we should get married. And then the script is like, okay, for some reason, <laughs> which causes like the rest of the movie to occur. Like if he hadn't married her and she was like some anonymous person, he just like ghosted her like a normal person would have if you chose to go back and it like super secret government work. Right. But alas, he compromises himself and gets, he gets a little sloppy with the Vatican. Right. And, and it's, really, it's funny. Owen Davian immediately upon meeting him is like, you had a wife, girlfriend, because like, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> You're fucked. The second I get out of here, which will be a lot sooner than you think, I'm going right. to ruin, I'm going to murder her while you watch or the other way around or both. So PSH to a certain, uh, until a certain time was notorious for just being vastly overqualified to be in this movie, but people kept calling the best villain of the franchise. Um, but more specifically on rewatch, how is he? What's he doing here? 
he's just so serious. Very and he's serious. So, but he's also like, he's human and he's lived in. Like, PSH was so good at playing someone who's like lived in. Like, and he's like, sure, he, this is a guy who makes his living as like a sadistic arms dealer, but like, he's still fat and his like clothes don't fit that well. And he, like, has a staff that's, like, not as good as they should be. Right. And he's just, like, going through daily life. And he's just like, you know what? If you fuck with me in this way, I'm going to do something to make sure that no one ever fucks with me in this way ever again. Because it'll put the Mm -hmm. fear of God into them. But because he's a psychopath. But not because he's not a human being. Like, whereas the last guy was not a human being. He was just sort of, like, a gay entity that, like, wanted to do something with that. Fuck everyone. <laughs> right. He wanted to have sex with Ethan Hunt, and then he wanted to, like, poison a bunch of people, but only for profit. Am I, too? Yeah. But, yeah, this Philip one, he's Seymour just a Hoffman. guy who's there to do a job. And I think that's what, that's the shift in this movie franchise that is great, because it realized that it's just people there trying to do their jobs. But Philip Seymour Hoffman has this ability to be above the exchange the whole countdown scene you know between every integer tom cruise is like listen man i can i, I can help you i let me help help me help you <laughs> and philip seymour hoffman's just like uh, four <laughs> and that tear when he's like do the right thing yeah five i don't give a shit he's i love how bored he plays can i make an observation though of course i think all of these movies, while in some ways they have incredible supporting casts, and we'll have to spend time on Ving Rhames. We'll have to do like just a... A five-minute block on Rhames. A five-minute block on Rhames. But we're not there yet. But it also has the overt problem of always having like one fatal miscast. And I think in this one, it's definitely Maggie Q. One of the interesting things is you can see the wheels of this franchise spin and spin and spin until they finally find Simon Pegg. Or, or until they oh, finally find Rebecca Ferguson. There's I mean, they, thing- they hit oil with Ving Rhames, though, who's in all right. six. Absolutely. But, they, you know, they, you can see them keep trying to do the same thing. And it's just like, ah, oh, that person didn't work. That person didn't work. And it's like, well, write them apart or find a better actor. And or finally, at least, like, give them some requiem when they're just abruptly not in the next movie. Right. right. <laughs> like, uh, I think it's so funny that Tom Cruise cares so much about Carrie Russell and it's like supposedly trained her that she was never mentioned before or after, like right, in any context. Right. There's no yeah. photo of her like on a desk somewhere. Nothing. Though I have to say, great casting here is the playoff of Billy Crudup and Lawrence Fishburne. Tremendous. So they good. Are, it's like a Phelps Kitteridge like recap, redone. Like Right. Well, because Crudup's got that Zerny, like, kind of quietly talking very precisely. And but you kind of like Crudup. Yeah, you kind of like him. But, yeah, Crudup's an interesting actor. We should you know do a what? Crudup pod. I would love that. You, you know in uh, that character he plays in Spotlight, where you find... Yeah. He's the lawyer, and you're, the whole time you're like, this fucking lawyer protecting the molesters. And then it, it, he's just like... I told you guys about this seven years ago. That's the, like the weird line you can never figure out with Crudup, including this movie. It's just like, this guy could be Russell Hammond and Almost Famous, or he could be like the biggest slime ball in the world. I don't know yet. He's definitely got an ulterior motive, though. Always. You just don't know what it is. Well, at first you think he's like extra good, but turns out he's extra bad. <laughs> 
but Fishburne gets some lines too. I have written down, uh, I will bleed on the flag to make sure the stripes stay red. That's a great one. <laughs> that is a great one. Oh, we, I'm sorry. I shit you not. I will bleed on the flag so the stripes <laughs> stay red. Oh, man. So maybe this is the time to talk about, for me, this franchise just has a fascinating tightrope relationship with detail. Every time you you look at something, you look at a character, you look at the continuity of Ethan Hunt, you look at the, a mission, a villain, anything, every part of your film criticness is going to be like, give me more, give me, give me more detail, give me something. But what this franchise completely ironically figures out is just like, no, no detail is way, way better because like we can't Robert Town all of these movies to death. Um... But so that's the the rabbit's foot is a very interesting sort of, um, you know, epicenter for that problem because you're like, well, that's really lazy that you had Simon Pegg show up and be like, whatever it is, it's probably like what my professor called the (laughs) anti-god and then it's never explained. So you're like, I see what your problem is. I see how you figured it out, but it's still lazy. Well, it's still a movie directed by the creator of Lost. Yes. Like, he's good at being thrilling and keeping you interested, but he's not good at tying up loose ends, and he's not right. good at giving you answers. So, right. like, and I mean, Admitting this movie out ends... Admitting that he won't. Yeah, and, and he completely sort of uh, indemnifies himself by, yeah, saying up front that he won't. Right. And, but it doesn't make it any less frustrating, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did find this movie just frustrating it's in this it's in this weird place where it's like you know i think it's it's significant markedly better than mi2 but because it's sort of foreshadowing what will be done i think much better in four five and six you're like oh the the bridge that's like the first that's a great i was just going to talk about the bridge modern daylight clear set pieces where you actually run from a place and back to a place and you understand the geography of a setting but then there are just these other things where it's like do you understand this character at all who right. are these other people we don't care about? Um, you, you know, you talked about that opening warehouse set piece, which I think is, you know, certainly loud, but it's also kind of confusing and nondescript con- considering what Bird and McQuarrie are going to do later. Oh, it's just like a, a scene cut in from like Alias, like B-roll or something. Exactly. Oh, exactly. Yeah, it's nothing to write home about. This, this movie tries something which is admirable, but I don't know if it, it's an interesting failure maybe in like... For characters that don't have character details, how can you make one of them fall in love and make that the most important right. thing? Yeah. Like, I mean, Ethan has parents ostensibly in the first movie that they talk about, like, arresting. And then we're going to totally cut them out for the second film. And then the third film, we're not going to bring them back. But now he's got a wife that he cares about more than anything. And why? And I think... This movie can't answer that. And I think that's a problem with the filmmaking. Yeah. So I think ultimately this movie of the six is a bad good. I'm going to give it a, I would, I agree. I can't really give it anything. Else. I think it's a soft, bad good as well. Although I don't really know why I, there was a reason I never, I had never seen four or five before because this movie, when I saw it as a teenager, I was just like, I don't really need I don't really need this series in my life. And there's something this, yeah. about this movie where it's so dire in the personal relationships that don't matter that made me quit once upon a time. 
Well, this movie's so shameless in its acknowledgement that this is an installment of a series that it almost runs the risk of making an audience so sort of confused or so sort of satisfied maybe or sort of whatever uh, that they won't see future installations because they know how ostensibly they're going to play out. Right. If there's just like a twist and a MacGuffin and that's it, you know? And I think that makes it, that makes the, I mean, the setup for four all that more unlikely that that movie is the most successful of the series. Yep. So yeah, I'm going to go bad. Good too. Can I, can we just give one more shout out to Philip Seymour Hoffman? I have a line written down at the end when the real Michelle Monaghan is in that Shanghai kind of hovel and he's got her mouth duct tape and he goes, Oh wait, I did tell you that uh, she would call out your name. And he goes and removes the duct tape. It's just like, it's mind blowing, like evil deadpan. It's incredible. He's incredible. It's, it's an unbelievable performance. Uh, You can't say enough about the talent that was lost. Okay, so Mission Impossible, Ghost Protocol. Four. That's four. The reins of the franchise are handed five years later from J.J. Abrams to Brad Bird. The The Pixar uh, guy. Yes, the director of such films as The Incredibles and Ratatouille and The Incredibles 2. So I said that the bridge scene in MI3 sort of foreshadowed the the modern Mission Impossible, but, but now we're in it. Friend of the pod, uh... Octavia Kozak was talking to me about this movie and he was just like, this is basically two trilogies. Um, and I, I do kind of subscribe to that theory because like as soon as this movie starts and Tom Cruise is in prison and all of a sudden it is this just electric, exquisitely put together popcorn filmmaking and Simon Pegg's like, it's time for our next adventure. Ethan, are you in the prison? I'm going to put on Dean Martin's kick in the head because in like a baby driver way, it's exactly the same length that you're going to need to get out of the prison. You kind of know that like, boy, are you somewhere else? A place that's never been touched by Brian De Palma or John Woo. Right. Well, it's gone from... I think the first three are suspense movies, and this is action. It knows that this is a Tom Cruise thing. It's a summer action movie. Though this one was released Christmas. So what does that say about it? Well, but it's intellectual property at this point. You know, the the, the film industry changes so massively between 2006 and 2011 because of the advent of Marvel. And all he might as well be Cruise Man at this point, right? Right. Next adventure of the cruise man. <laughs> and yeah, I just feel like you, you know right away that something is different. And I, 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 watching it, I couldn't have been more excited. I know you maybe thought the opening scene was a little cute, but I loved it. Yeah. Well, let me say this. Whereas one, two, and three are definitely like interesting movies visually, this one is the first one that I would call a true spectacle visually. And of right. like, of course, they brought in the director of Pixar to like, you know someone's going to be flinging themselves like off a building like into something else and like yeah. outside something with a storm coming with a car with the pushy buttons on the windshield and like it's right. all there. This is I mean and I I guess I'll come out and deliver my highest praise. I think that the the 45 minute Dubai set piece of them sort of like driving up on the city out of the desert like it's like fucking Lawrence of Arabia. 
Um, with the sandstorm coming that will come back into play when the set piece rolls into another set piece, rolls into another set piece. This is the first time th these movies are like, oh, we can have an action sequence be an act of the movie, an entire act, and never stop. An hour ago, a bomb blew up the Kremlin. The president has initiated ghost protocol. The entire IMF has been disavowed. Now I've been ordered to take you to Washington where they will hang the Kremlin bombing on you and your team, unless you were to escape after assaulting Brandt and me. But if any one of your team is caught, they will be branded terrorists out to incite global nuclear war also just the advent of of daylight we talked about the warehouse scene in mi3 like it's very 2000s very 90s to be like yeah an action scenes should be you know michael bay it should be loud it should be disorienting and they're like no 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 the ultimate set pieces are not disorienting they are orienting they are you feel every finger of the sticky glove slip off the high rise you need to understand everything kinetically that is happening that's how we hack the set piece and that's what macquarie is still doing today right and he did an uncredited rewrite on this too that's right so this is i mean if it's a trilogy it's based on the fact that like macquarie's dirty little fingerprints though i don't really know what those fingerprints look like but they're there yeah, um, I can't really think of any lines in four. In five, I really felt him trying pretty hard with the script, but we'll get to that. Um, I find Christopher McQuarrie, who, shout out, grew up in my town. In Lawrenceville? Yeah. Or I think I he grew up and was born in Lawrenceville and was raised in West Windsor. But like I'm, like I was in a play with uh, his cousin, Sarah McQuarrie. Oh, cool. Yeah. Local boy, local hero, but an enigma because like, I think one like I thought of him in the late nineties and early two thousands is sort of like a crimey kind of Brian, uh, singer acolyte kind yeah, he was of good friends with Brian Singer and he well, won I mean, he best wrote, original screenplay for usual suspects. Exactly. But it's hard to tell where like the Brian Singer ended in the early nineties and where he began. But I right. think what he's really good at is just making intelligent thrilling cinema yes like i think that may be his calling card yeah he seems to look at his mission at this point as not you know reinventing the action crime genre with usual suspects and way of the gun but being a steward being a steward learned, yeah. yeah take what you've learned there and apply it to you know, I think him and Ryan Johnson are in an interesting parallel right now. I think that's a great point. Because they both have at their disposal either the access to a major franchise or the pedigree to then do really whatever they want afterwards. A, yeah, I love it. Yeah. God, yeah. But j this movie just had me. The prison sequence. The minute Leah Sidhu is walking down the street looking like a fucking Serrano, the lady assassin from The Sting in her trench coat... And like the guy yeah. in the alley is like, oh, hello. And she just like gives him three in the chest. Um, oh, Sawyer from Lost. Right. Like this movie just had me. I was just like ready to go. Um, and the new people it brings in are uh, Paula Patton basically replacing Maggie Paula Q. Paula Patton is right? terrible. I don't think she's terrible. I think there's a reason she's not in the other ones. She is the miscast, especially in that scene that requires her to be like 
it's a weird scene with the the little guy at the mansion. The little guy. Oh yeah, yeah, that's bizarre. But it also shows that she doesn't have a lot of range. No, Paul Patton doesn't have a lot of range. Um, but I think the introduction of Jeremy Renner though is like a big score. Well, this is an interesting thing because clearly on a business level they were thinking about well, Tom Cruise, you're what, 48? They didn't, right. they, they didn't know a damn thing. Um, but, you can only be doing action movies for the next 30 years. We must consider your replacement. We must consider your replacement. And so we bring in Jeremy Renner to be this CIA analyst who it's sort of like revealed is not a numbers guy. He's more Ethan Hunt than Jack Ryan. Um, but why? Why is he, you know, relegated himself to a desk job? Um but Renner's, Renner's good. Like, he's he's always pretty good. Um, you remember when he failed to protect Ethan's wife? Yeah, that's what I was that's talking about. That's kind of a stupid sequence. It's not. It's That's pretty bad. Like, that's what I think Brad Bird's fatal flaw is, is that he thinks this movie needs that rest between acts. It, like, yeah. needs that intermission or something when they're like, Jeremy Renner, why are you here? monologue for three minutes about how you were in Kosovo or whatever and you failed right. to save you know when the Serbs attacked you like were taking a nap or whatever and it doesn't need that the no. series does not need that just to have him there and he can have an ulterior motive and it could be something so much simpler than that well it's and it's the MI thing too right of like wait do we need continuity who is do we need to answer the question of who Ethan Hunt is or are we constantly yeah. better what off what happened to not- his wife not focusing on that. Well, this is a movie that asks the question to what happened to a character from another film. Right. Which adds a layer that I just don't think needs to necessarily be there. But if you're ca- cause that connects the first three movies and what we'll call the new trilogy. They don't want to make Ethan say very much. You know, the thing happens between the Oprah couch jump and the Tom Cruise rehabilitation project where all of a sudden Tom Cruise just doesn't, want to play characters who make very intense decisions. He just wants to do. He's a doer. I mean, even think about American Made we talked about, right? He's oh, just he loves gr- doing stuff. He's just the gringo who always delivers. That is not a character with great <laughs> introspection, and neither is Ethan Hunt. He just like he just does things, and that is sort of like a sleight of hand, I think to provoke the audience to appreciate what he does and not think very much about who he is. It's an interesting, yes, it's an interesting appreciation of not only a character, but of the man himself, Tom Cruise. Right. Just like watch him do his thing. Cause it's so electric. Like just don't ask too many questions. Like he's an enigma now, like after the Oprah and the Katie Holmes divorce, he's gone. Um, so let's rate this movie. I think this one is a, a clear, good, good. This this might be, I, man, I can't believe I haven't decided because we're doing a podcast right now. This might be tied for like my favorite of the franchise. I think The Jailbreak, Dubai, The Kremlin with the hologram screen. I was just exhilarated by this movie through and through. It's also still only two hours, thank God. Right. I don't know. I don't know that this one really won me over. Really? I think it's a good movie, like front to back. And I think like it's... In many ways, it feels like it's so much a social commentary on, like, where Tom Cruise is as an actor, clearly because, like, Tom Cruise is paying for this movie to be made. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
in that way, it's like kind of it's kind of boring. It's like kind of predictable. Boring. I mean, I mean it in like the sort of predictable, like okay, here's what Ethan's gonna go through emotionally. Okay. Through this, and then we'll we'll tack on this little like epilogue at the end to give him like that J.J. Abrams humanity that like we all love so much. Tom Cruise has never had a beer in his entire life. What do I do with this object? (laughs) (laughs) Dos Equus? Ving, what am I... Is this a popular brand of uh, libation? Is this mineral water? (laughs) It has a tang to it. Tom, put that down. So what's your final word on Ghost Prote? I think Ghost Prote is a good bad. It shows what the franchise can finally shift into, but not quite. I think that's foolhardy. I think if you break it down, I, I'm looking at my Mission Impossible spreadsheet right now, and four and six just flat out have the best set pieces. But I think if you were rating all these movies compared to just each other, yeah, I, I think this one, if you're going to endeavor to watch all six of them in Who a short period of time, this one's going to be the most good bad. That's a bad take. Let's talk about Rogue Nation. Let's do it. Okay, so this is... Uh, where the hell are we? What year is Rogue Nation? That was 15. the one I just saw over the weekend, right? <laughs> and this movie's got a pretty great cold open. Oh, it's a great. Because we're just on this field. Doesn't this movie... Don't, like, this movie and the next movie, um, Fallout, feel very, like, not only Christopher Nolan-y, but, like, Dark Knight specifically. It just like starts with that middle shot of that building and then just like the thing, like the window explodes and then it's like off to the races. Yeah. Muscular, but precise for sure. Muscular, but precise. Nice. Thank you. And yeah, so Benji's in that fucking field and they're trying to get a bunch of nukes off this airplane, but the airplane's about to take off. Like the airplane can't take off with the nukes in it. And it's... Jeremy Renner talking to Ving, who's not supposed to be there, and he's like on a satellite on some tower somewhere. I love how he just doesn't move very much. Well, yeah, Ving, he just sits. He just sits. And we'll go back to that article for the ninth <laughs> time, but like, it's, he sits like 90% of his like screen time. Yeah. He's sitting, which is hilarious. But anyway, the plane's about to take off. And nobody can figure out how to, like, stop the plane. And Tom Cruise is just like, I'm going to do it. And he runs after the plane. He jumps onto the wing. He crawls onto the side. He's holding on, and the plane fucking takes off. And if you have never seen, like, the HBO behind-the-scenes, like, trailer for how, like, them doing that sequence, it is unbelievable how, like, little protection Tom Cruise had. Like, of course, he was, like, actually strapped to the plane, and they did, like, him coming in in a studio. But, like, he's still on the fucking side of a plane, like, with a suit on. I mean, he's got a harness underneath. The joy with which he describes how G-Forces ripped his feet off the wing into a full hang is, uh, is very Tom cruise It's so good. He's so excited to, like, have done that. <laughs> yeah, that's what this and franchise it, is at this point. <laughs> but he's having fun. And that's, like, what's fun about these movies is, like, Tom Cruise is, like, holding it and, like, having fun. Yes. 
and we intro- we're introduced to, I think, the most dynamic characters of the latter two films, which are almost just like a twofer in their own regard. The Macquaries. Mm-hmm. We get Rebecca Ferguson as Ilsa Faust, which is a great fucking name. That's some Owen Davian level shit right there. That's great. And the uh, the cold open or like the 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 intro to the like main plot is like pretty good and pretty sad, but it like it sort of meditates on the trope of like Ethan can't see a woman get hurt, which mm-hmm. you then kind of piece together about this film series if you've watched all four of them now in a row and are working on a fifth. Um, but yeah, it's he sees he goes in for the here's your mission if you choose to accept it, but it's not the usual guys. It's the syndicate. It's the syndicate. This organized crime syndicate Syndicate. (laughs) that uh, he's been trying to prove the existence of for the better part of a year. Yeah. And they're like, your mission, if you choose to accept it is to accept your fate as, as like a, an old guard ancient, you belong in a museum. The IMF is uniquely trained and highly motivated. Specialist without equal immune to any countermeasures. But it is an agency of chaos. The time has come to dissolve the IMF. Now I want you to choose your next words very carefully. Where is Hunt? Last I heard he was tracking the syndicate. How come the CIA has never discovered any intel regarding the syndicate? You want the polite answer or the truth? I do feel that we get into a problem again of like the razor's edge of detail. So you have one force that is hell bent on world disorder and one that is bent on order, which is essentially comedic and general enough to be chaos and control from get smart <laughs> not explained at all like what right. you that's the thing that once i feel like they crack something open for the first time where they're like we want a magniloquent villain who finally in the bwahaha speech can like really tease out something about what they want a great suffering is there you has alluded- to be a great suffering before there could be a great peace too many many times but if you're once you start taking steps in that direction, then of course my questions are like, what is the morality of the Great Suffering? What is the morality of the IMF? But these are questions the movies are not prepared to answer. I don't think. But I like that this movie endeavors to do that and shifts it into fifth gear. Where like the rabbit's foot, the rabbit's foot's just the fucking key on the ground for him to get out of the cuffs. The rabbit's foot is child's play. Yeah. We're talking about like human morality now. Like, right, and then the, but does it the have anything to say about human of, morality? Is the I syndicate right or wrong? Is the IMF... Wh- well, after having watched these movies, I mean, the IMF is like, they, they're only fighting now people who used to work for them. Right, and right. because they made them do such horrible things, they're trying to get rid of the system that created them, which is probably a good idea. I think you're giving it too much credit. They're not trying to get rid of the system. They, it's the, it's the weird like we're gonna kill civilians in planes and blow up Mecca in Jerusalem. But it's the same shit that IMF goes through in 
getting to their end goal, which is to not let that happen. Okay. It's their their perfect yin and yang. Uh, They're Batman and Joker. Right, but that's what I'm saying is so successful about this series. It then shifts into your your fucking Avengers, like, what does it all mean? But yeah, like, you you know the characters now. Now we're going to talk about life. Right. We're going to talk about what it means. Death incarnate versus franchise propagation incarnate. But also, like, Tom Cruise versus Hollywood and, like... Let's you know what is, what does it say about our movies that Jeremy Renner is like being groomed to be the replacement Tom Cruise? Yeah, and isn't Tom Cruise still the golden oldie and better? Yes, I feel like a weird mark I have against this movie is the sort of bizarre second level, you know, um, call sheet politic that is working itself out in the script where Renner gets booted from this movie for trying to talk reason into Ethan Hunt. Because this is the first movie where it seems like Ethan Hunt is an insane person. Only Lane has the answers! <laughs> we have to give Lane everything so we can find out what he might do. And then Renner's like, don't you see why that's insane? And Tom Cruise <laughs> is like, well, then you're not going to be in these movies anymore. <laughs> and so and he's not! And then a pretty good character is <laughs> frankly dismissed. Right. But that's so funny, though, because, like, it's almost like Tom Cruise is shouting at Jeremy Renner, like, don't you understand? These movies need to exist. Right. <laughs> like, otherwise, I know it's ridiculous, but otherwise they don't have a career. Yeah. And Jeremy Renner's like, I'm going to tell on you and then I'm going to slip into my own thing. But that's kind of funny, though. It's funny. <laughs> but it does take, like, what was a sort of interesting character and in one of the better actors in this series and just sort of like kick him out for being wrong according to the script's rules which again those rules don't make sense <laughs> right but we're all just living in like tom cruise's like weird and him and macquarie's like fucking fantasy world it's so exactly it's so weird that this series is just like it's not actually it's not improving by adding things it's just improving by shedding things. Right. And it I just feel- cuts away interesting. I mean, it's sort of like the Game of Thrones model where mm. it's like, we're done with them. <laughs> you know, we're moving on to something else now that the, uh, we The opened. ice dragon is what you will like, and there will soon be no dialogue, just ice dragons. And you can't see any of the characters because it's fucking snowing. Right. <laughs> but I kind of like the supervillain here who's also, like, not only pretty crafty the way that Ethan is, he's also, like, pretty physically terrifying. And something about the fact that he doesn't have a chin is, like, very scary. And he's got this creepy little voice. You send me to do a job, I do it. But my way, not yours. Where did I deviate? You put two more gunmen at the opera tonight. One of them tried to kill me. You missed. I missed because Ethan Hunt was there looking for you. Ethan Hunt's in Vienna because you allowed him to escape in London. Winter would have killed him in London, and that's not what you asked for. Twice now, you let him slip away. Curious. What happens in this movie? That's another thing with this movie. So I've got my spreadsheet pulled up here. I'm kind of like judging by spreadsheets and judge, or judging by set pieces and judging by places. What are the I, set pieces? The set pieces in this one are the plane hang on. Well, that's like the cold open. Right. The 
spinning underwater Taurus file extraction. Oh, yeah, that one. I kind of like that one. I don't really love that one. It's hard underwater, to see. Underwater, holding his breath? It's hard to see. Well, here's another thing. That, that set piece to me, uh, more than any other ones in the recent installments, was just like Bond bullshit. Them being yeah, like... It's a little fake digital. Well, I meant sort of in a... Um, establishing the conditions way they're like oh they put the codes to enter a building in an underwater oscillation tank that senses metals so no one can take a breath tank in there that's no different than mr bond of course you can find the key card if you swim through my tank of sharks like that's <laughs> it's no different it's just not as campy yeah um and then the, again the casablanca cars is not as good as some of the uh as the Dubai thing in the prior movie. Um, I think this movie just comes down to like a B level on the set pieces. This is what I think happens is I think Macquarie is writing the shit out of this one. Um, and he's maybe not thinking as much about the directing. Alec Baldwin delivers a lot of lines like uh, Ethan Hunt is the manifestation of destiny. No matter what you do, he will reckon with you or something. I like you said, he uses the word uh, wanton. Twice. At least twice. In five minutes, which the editor in me is leaving a Google.com comment where you're like, don't repeat the word wanton, because that's a crazy thing to do. <laughs> I may um, use wanton, but I'm not going to use it twice in five minutes. Your wanton use of the word wanton will not stand here. Um, <laughs> yeah, Hunt sounds, Hunt is a lot, I fear he's both arsonist and fireman. Like things that I really are like, oh, that's a nice <laughs> moment. Like, but then you think about it and it's like, it's a little much guy for then just making me watch cars go downstairs in Casablanca. Right. But I think too, that it's, it's this sort of strange, like every, that's maybe the, the edges starting to show on this Truman show of, uh, Tom Cruise's mission impossible life. Uh, is the fact that they're all like at the end of the day, the the movie hangs on the idea of him being like not believed and people thinking that he's the mole. That's the border. Like you can't really go much further than like, well, if the government is sanctioning this thing, then the movie sort of loses its appeal almost. Cause then it becomes a commentary on like crude American diplomacy or something. Right, which this it, this franchise cannot get into. It's a bridge too far. It has to be apolitical while being very political. While giving movies. the appearance of being super political. Right, and that again, that is the <laughs> that's the razor's edge. I love that you put it that way. Yeah, it's like oh, we can't have any politics in here, but like this whole thing is based on like office infighting politics. Right, in but the we're dealing agency. solely with the intelligence agencies that like we are not very trustful of right now. I'm just not. This, I'm not that high. Th that high on this one. I think I might give it a good bad. I'm going to say that this movie like poses the big question of like, does the IMF need to exist to have these movies or can and it just be question, a rogue nation of sorts? Could it just be any rogue nation? But I think, you know, as much as the train threatens to come off the rails, I think it ultimately lands back down and is a, at least a soft, good, good for me. All right. All right. So the sixth one, We've Fallout, the one that just came out. Episode 200 of Be Real now in progress. 
so Fallen has the longest opening of them all where they're like doing this crazy Ethan like, well, if we give them the warheads, they'll not do something. And Ving Rhames gets caught up in the crossfire and Ethan has to choose between the plutonium spheres and Ving Rhames. And Mm -hmm. he ends up shooting Ving Rhames in the chest, but he knows he has a bulletproof vest. So that causes like a quick firefight. And in that firefight, the bad guys who are part of the syndicate in the next syndicate called the Apostles, a movie, uh, this series uses so much biblical reference but is so a religious it's the same thing it's just like signifiers that if you try to follow them down the path you'll realize they dead end really hard right like just because of like the job like (laughs) stuff in the first one doesn't mean that this movie has anything to do it's only interested in the bible because you would find it in a hotel uh like side table right damn hotel nightstand but yeah the apostles want to arm these three nukes which is going to cause the, you know, the great suffering, which is going to, they have like their 99 theses here. They like write a manifesto and, oh, in the cold opening, you think that like the apostles have gotten the nukes and that they've gone off because fucking Wolf Blitzer's just like, hey guys, like three nukes just went off and it looks like it's these guys called the apostles. And like, if they agree to open their phone will read their manifesto over the air. And yeah. so we like, and we're in this room with this guy who's allegedly been arrested for being involved with the bombings. We and get like, our, just unlock your phone guy. <laughs> we get our third pretty uninteresting crazed nuclear physicist. Right. And we're just like, unlock your phone. We want to look at your texts. And they like get his phone and they Wolf Blitzer reads the fucking manifesto that it hasn't cool. happened. They just set it up, and it's fucking Simon Pegg in the Wolf Blitzer costume. It's a knockoff. It's the scenario room. It is. It's the situation room. But it's not the real situation room. It's, it's, it's the, the scenario, scenario room. room. <laughs> he literally delivers fake news to who seems to be a Russian terrorist. <laughs> and somehow this movie remains apolitical. <laughs> And that's what's so incredible about it. Oh, my God. It is a movie, like, without politics whatsoever, but uses contemporary cultural reference points so you can understand what it's doing. Your mission. Should you choose to accept it? I wonder, did you ever choose not to? You always feared is coming. And the blood will be on your hands. The fallout of all your good intentions. You know, Solomon Lane is uh is in captivity here, but like there's this new right hand man who's, you know, got the real nukes or like the ability to get the real nukes. What's his name? Locke, but they don't know who it is. So they got to go figure out who this person is at the same time as they're trying to transport Solomon Lane. Um, But then the IMF, as always, is under pressure because should the IMF exist, (laughs) it's under pressure from the CIA, the new CIA boss, Angela Bassett, and uh, her prized agent, Walker, played by Hank Cavill. Um, (laughs) August Walker. 
August Walker. Wow. Um, <laughs> you like that one. The names. Um, and yeah, so like the first big set piece after the cold open is, uh, you know, Walker kind of begrudgingly partnered with Cruz because, you know, there's like a cross-agency compromise going on here, uh, even though the IMF doesn't want it. Um, but then you're like, Cavill, what, what is with this guy? Which to me is just a fascinating, a fascinating question. Well, Cavill's sort of like the Tom Cruise victory lap of like, you can throw Jeremy Renner at me and he will not stick. Throw, <laughs> throw me Henry Cavill. Fucking Superman. Give me Superman. Do you think Henry Cavill's a good actor? In general, no. But I loved him in this movie. Really? Um, I thought he was kind of one of the miscasts. I don't think so at all because at this point you are entering this sort of like platonic ideal plane of what can Ethan Hunt do? Who can he face? And what if he faces somebody younger, better looking and a hundred pounds heavier? <laughs> um, and you just, and, and he's just, he's such a, in some ways like a cartoon character of an asshole the first time they ever work together is that incredible like uh you know zero gravity jump through the lightning storm and tom cruise is like hey i'm gonna walk back in this long take to tell you that there's a lightning storm and walker goes enough talk and rips out his oxygen as if to be like the first moment that our partnership actually matters i'm gonna like in this macho needless way dick you over He's sort of like Gaston he's, in a he's way. exactly like <laughs> fucking Gaston. That is perfect. But like Gaston, you're like, oh, Gaston's kind of hot. And like, <laughs> and like, he's a pretty good foil for the beast. <laughs> the beast. <laughs> oh, no. Um, but that's the thing, though. Like, Henry Cavill's like so, he's so like uninteresting to me. Other than him being, like, good-looking. But you need an actor in that who, like, can surprise you with his first big weird performance. You know, like, the fact that, like, Angela Bassett sets him up with, like, a, you know, I brought my best. It's like, I've heard of you. You know, I know your reputation. He's like, if you want to discuss my methods, like, we can go into the, the cargo hold of this this plane but he never like loses his shit like even when he this movie's a lot like dark knight like in its imagery in its setups in its sequences like they have to get the guy out of the truck it's more like dark knight rises i think i disagree i think it's almost shot for shot like dark knight you know it's got a guy who gets half his face burned off like a handsome guy there's a lot of stuff that happens. It's very similar, but I think no more pointedly than the Paris, uh, first the sequence of getting Solomon Lane out, and then the on the motorcycles. This movie goes to another place for me in terms of like the stacking up of set pieces. In this like insane foot race, ends up clinging to the bottom of Henry Cavill's elevator in a great jump, and at that moment, you know, you're like, well, that should be the end of any reasonable action movie and you're like no i know we're at like an hour 40 i know there's something even bigger coming and boy is there this this movie to me like redefines almost like how much action can you squeeze into something on a fury road level sure it definitely has that fury road intensity to it yeah like it, has, it takes us to a place we've never seen but maybe it 
maybe we have seen it is maybe what I'm arguing. Okay. It like reminded me a lot of other right. stuff, but I think it takes it to an interesting, maybe what I'm just reminded of is the ability to take it to another level of like, I think it's very interesting in the end of that sequence where Ethan like crashes the motorcycle. Right. Cause I don't know that we've seen him like fuck up so severely before, but thank God, but he was like close enough to make it work. Cause he ends up being close to the bushes anyway, but he's like jogging off what like probably is a compound fracture, but in this movie's universe is just like a sprained ankle or something. Well, mortality of a physical and uh, psychological nature is creeping in all over the place here. You want to talk a little bit about how many times Ethan Hunt apologizes for things? Well, that's the thing about this character that I think is so fascinating, especially this movie is released like when it is because there's like a certain wokeness to it of every time, basically every time Ethan has to like use someone to like get to like further his agenda that is ultimately good. He like has a moment with them and he often touches them and apologizes. Yeah. Like he does it to his wife. He does it to that female cop that he like, uh, that gets shot and they have to like roll by. Uh, he does it to Alec Baldwin, like spoiler when he gets, he gets stabbed. And he just ends up, and then he's like, I thought it was such a fascinating moment why they chose to have them run through a funeral. Like, oh, a, yeah. a, it's like a crowd of very focused people, and he has to just sort of outwardly like raise his hands up and be like, I am so sorry. Yeah. Like, you're here to mourn your friend, and I'm a distraction from that. And he's it's almost as if like Tom Cruise is like facing any potential backlash that he may be in store for in like the me too movement, but also social media in general and like criticisms of his, like what he's doing. Right. It's, it's his me too movie, which is saying that I'm sorry if I did anything to hurt you, but I like needed to do it to keep this movie going forward. Hmm. And haven't you all loved my movies? Look at my big finish. Right. Yeah. It continues to be this magic trick with the help of his most capable magician's assistant ever in these six movies. And I think this movie is like not afraid to, to for Tom Cruise to be like, you know what, this may be the last one I do. Like he lets himself, if you notice, in all the other movies, he doesn't let himself, regardless of how, you know, out of it he is in a mission, he never lets himself get a five o'clock shadow. Mm-hmm. You know, if he can help it, like he has a big beard when he's like in Havana or whatever, and he has like the beard in the um, in the jail sequence. But like, you never see him with like a little stubble. And in this one, you see like the gray sort of coming into his face, and you see that like maybe this is the last one we. But he's gonna keep making movies, and we're gonna be okay with that. Noah, so before we get to our end rankings and ratings and things, we got to have a Luther Stickle conversation. How does this franchise use or not use Ving Rhames effectively down the stretch? Yeah, he's such an interesting presence because in one way he's like God. He's sort of this omnipotent thing that if you need him, he sort of appears like a fairy godmother, so to speak. Right. But in other ways, he's maybe what Tom Cruise understands to be like male friendship. 
We're just, it's someone you know you love and that they know you love them back. And he has these people come and go, and some of them are just playing with his heart. But really, Luther and Simon Pegg, uh, Benji, he's always like, especially in the last movie, he's always like, guys, I'm going to figure it out. Like, we're going to, everything's going to be fine. Just trust me. And there's a lot of that in this yeah. sort of. He So Luther becomes, to me, a, a symptom of, of this thing in this franchise I'm not sure how I feel about. He's not, he doesn't change that much, but in the, in the first movie, he has a lot more personality. There's a certain giddiness to Luther when Tom Cruise is like, if you knew how bad this was going to be, you wouldn't even do it. And Luther's like, ha, okay, I'll break into Langley with you. Um, but then over a while he, be, he becomes sort of like the, like the documenter and chief of Ethan Hunt's like many exploits and other people are like are you sure we can trust Ethan Hunt and he's just like well he's never steered me wrong before so he becomes a very tender character down the stretch but I also think even if you just look at the way Ving Rhames performs he is symptomatic of this softening of the entire Mission Impossible apparatus in a way that is (laughs) almost like Fast and Furious like esque it's just like well we are in our own way a family and he's going to figure it out. And really what more needs to be said in the script or from the audience. <laughs> right. That's so funny that you think it's become soft. Uh. Uh, character wise, these characters used to have edges and they don't anymore. <laughs> right. They don't have, they're, they're very like amenable to the status quo when really they're all just in like abusive relationships. But if I can like further a thing about what I think is funny about this series is that like, both Ving Rhames and Luther are both really there for the paycheck, ultimately. This is very true. What, <laughs> what have you seen Ving Rhames in the last 15 what years? Exactly. Like, Mission Impossible movies. We are Michelle Monaghan being like, what's up with Tom Cruise? Like, is he all right? Like, I haven't heard much about him. And then there's Ving Rhames being like, same old Tom. Right. <laughs> for better or worse. You know, like what you know about Tom Cruise is still true, but like he's also willing to just be in like four major motion pictures every two years. Yeah, so I'm not sure how I feel about that. This movie, this franchise has reached a place of like utter transcendence on the one hand, on the spectacle hand, and then sort of like a complete lack of specificity or conflict or anything on the the character side. So what does that make you? I don't think we've rated Fallout. Fallout. I, it's a it's a good good. I mean, I think it is. I think it's probably my favorite of the franchise. I'm just saying that this this franchise for me has has clear limits. That this movie has like magic tricked its way around on some level, but then you look at it and you're like. That's not how you write a character, you guys. This is this is definitely how you write a an unending machine of very pleasing low commitment <laughs> movies, but it's not how you make a great movie. Okay. On the whole, do you think this series like averages good good? Does it trend good good or does it is it more like good bad with all of its bad in it? <laughs> No, no, I think it. I think it trends good, good, or bad, I, good, rather. I said this in my review, my written review on the site that I had to do to go to the presser for the new movie. <laughs> but I think what people like about this movie 
you can't from 2006 did the franchise get so much better or did the fr- did the idea of a franchise in general change so much that people just adore the fact that they can go to this movie and essentially see death-defying feats filmed in a gorgeous way and then not have to worry about who who's captain planet who's uh <laughs> Right. You know, is Watto gonna come back? Is Darth Maul gonna be in this? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's just a guy doing a thing with such beautiful like clarity, and you can't believe it's happening. And you just don't have to worry about very much. It's it's the height. What's well, a pop- B level franchise? It's only on the list of franchises out there. It is number twenty six. Mm, okay. And I think this movie series has this whole franchise has always been much better directors and writers posturing to make like a big studio movie when otherwise they have no idea how to do that (laughs) okay uh on the spot time because we have got to get the hell out of here can you rank these what's your personal ranking i like the most recent one the most six three four five one two okay Six, four, one, five, three, two. Okay. And if you go to uh, our Planet Fitness or 24-Hour Fitness, you can open our lockers and seal our gym clothes that way (laughs) by doing either of those combinations. Yeah. Like, first try his birthday. Now do his preferences of the Mission Impossible (laughs) films. (laughs) Oh, man. Um, Jesus Christ. We did it, buddy. We did Happy it. Happy 100 episodes. I, and to you, I'm so, I'm so pleased to still be doing this and to still be, I think, doing an okay job. Maybe we need to save our emotional thoughts for episode 101 because I can't think of anything other to say than uh, I love buddy, you. Thanks for doing the podcast. Buddy, I love you. All thanks right. for being on the other end of the phone. Of course. It's my great, if, my great pleasure. Well, let's, here's to 100 more. Here's to 100 more. Check out BeRealPodcast.com if you want to listen to any, back to any of these joints. Uh, follow Be Real Podcast on Instagram. Uh, that's kind of some of the latest news from us. And if you've somehow missed recently, you're a follower of the show or you're interested in following the show, we recently had people on like uh, Bart Layton, Gus Van Sant, Deborah Granick, and uh, we've got another director coming on the show pretty soon. So stay tuned for that. Bless you all. And bless you, Noah. Bless you, buddy. Um, Just remember, you can't have a great peace without first a great suffering. (laughs) 